This is Dr. James Crosby, Head of Sustainability at Advantage Utilities. I'd like to ask, could your organisation be more of an energy sector hero? Are you interested in improving your sustainability as a business? Well, now you can obtain the expert view and guidance on renewable energy solutions, on-site generation, carbon accounting, and sophisticated grid energy purchasing options through Advantage Utilities. Our team of experts use the latest tools to better analyse, track and reduce your organisation's energy usage and carbon emissions. To find out how Advantage Utilities can become your one-stop shop for all your energy and sustainability needs, please visit www.advantageutilities.com or give one of our passionate and friendly team a call on 0208-131-4747. Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week I am joined by Kelly Watt. Kelly is an incredible digital twin strategy consultant. Kelly, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, no problem, Michelle. Thanks for having me. So my name is Kelly Watt. I've been in the 3D space for quite a long time, worked with some of the largest companies in the space, Trimble Navigation, Ferro Technologies, and been in the in the strategy consulting side of the business for the last five, six years now. Run my own company called Digital Twin Consulting, where we handle a lot of large critical infrastructure projects, oil and gas, power energy, large airports like DFW, things of that nature. Okay. I was really excited actually to, to be interviewing you because I've never actually heard of Digital Twin Strategy. What is is that and how how does it benefit the energy sector? Yeah, so, you know, the digital twin term itself is uh, relatively new, but what we're really talking about is uh, product lifecycle management. So really taking design to a point where we can replicate a physical product or an asset or, or something that's much larger like a plant. And not only design it in a 3D format, but able to connect other types of data. So data can be in the in a design aspect. It can be uh, scheduling. It can be finance. It can be materials and costing and logistics and things straight through. And then once we get to the point of commissioning, it's operational data. It could be IoT, OT data. So looking at telemetry, SCADA information, and attaching that to a physical spatial place. So we can solve problems um, a lot kind of quicker when we can get access to data quickly. And one of the better ways to organize data is spatially, because if I walk into a plant, into a building, into a room, and I look at a pump, and I want to find that pump, I can see it. If I could point and touch it, and I could extract everything about that pump, whether it be an operator manual, maintenance, commissioning, set, whatever those those pieces of information are, if we can extract it based on how we see the world, it's a much more efficient way than how we typically look at information, tabular reports, trying to find it in spreadsheet columns and, and, and trying to, you know, go through long, long reports from one page to the next. So, so it's really a way of restructuring how we look at data 
and attaching that to a physical spatial location. And then also we need to look at this thing, which we call a digital twin. It's a, you know, a way of, of, of managing data. We have to keep it current, right? So it has to be synchronous with the real world. So that's, that's one of the biggest challenges is how we, how we feed data in and out and how we are creating a better environment to solve traditional business problems differently. Okay, that sounds amazing. So how did you actually get involved with that? How did you get get started in that? Yeah, it's been a bit of a journey, that's for sure. I mean, even as as early as five years ago, when I started my consulting practice, there really wasn't a lot of content online. The digital twin space came in from the aerospace industry, where we're looking to try things, simulate things virtually before you put, you know, something in out of space. So that's really logical, right? Because it's costly to do so. But there wasn't a lot of content. So really, I think my background at the Reality Capture, I, I led a, a team with Ferro Technologies where we sold terrestrial laser scanning. We're creating virtual worlds with laser scanning and imagery. I think that really kind of prompted my deep understanding, standing on the on the on that part of things. And we create 3D models and design files from from uh, LIDAR. And I really, uh, I've always been a self-learner. So, you know, you can get in a role with a technology company, you can really learn a lot, especially if you're involved with the R&D process. And I had a number of consultants that we had on hire that we would, you know, can we solve this problem? How can we do this? And really try to deeply explore what was possible. So I think that really helped me. And when I couldn't do something, I would research it or try it myself. And, you know, if, if I was to make recommendations to anyone that wants to get into an industry, you know, don't be afraid to get on the edge and try something and fail quickly and learn from that because your failures are what draws you future success. I agree. You were going back to saying that you would collect data. How would you actually collect that data? Yeah, it's interesting because we use the term data and it, it actually means so, so it means something different to so many people, right? But what is data, right? So is, is data IoT data? Is it something that's feeding a signal from a, a sensor to somewhere else? It, you know, from a reality capture perspective, data means measurement data, right? So traditionally, you see someone on the side of the highway with a, a yellow tripod looking through a scope. That's a total station. And they're measuring a single point from where, they're, where they are to someone else that holds a stick, right? And that stick is the end point. So they're looking at a single measurement. Well, in the laser scanning world, we're capturing automatically laser scan points, measurement points just like that, about a million points per second, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on the instrument you're using. And then it takes color photographs and it creates this kind of virtual world, you know, that, you know, like a Tom Cruise movie where you can go around and kind of navigate a space in the, in the virtual reality space. Um, and, and that's really the data I was talking about. That data includes creating models, design files, uh, as a result of understanding the measurement data, you can create design files. So it, it all of this is data, even, even documents, uh, tests, uh, Commissioning all all of this all of this is data whether it's unstructured whether it's telemetry which is which is sensor data whether it's reality capture measurement data design data all of this is data and, and we're really just trying to find a better way to navigate it understand it and use it for business cases right so if something happens I don't have to physically you know get in my truck and drive down and physically look at something I have a virtual rep, a replica of that and I can trust that data I can use it to solve those business problems okay. That sounds amazing. Actually, it sounds interesting as well. So how did you actually get started in the energy sector then? Yeah, so in, in the energy sector, we, we have sold equipment uh, 
from from uh, the time when I was at Faro into the space. So that's kind of my starting point. I moved into to representing some software applications in my consulting effort, and I think our, our bigger kind of play in the oil and gas was in the uh, in the in the, the storage kind of space. So I work with a company, QI2 Elements, that does a lot of uh, tank inspections and remediations and repair work. And really, when we ever have downtime, whether it be a tank, a plant, whatever, it's one of the most expensive things a plant have to deal with, right? Because they're not operational. Any type of manufacturer process manufacturing downtime means you're not making money, you're spending money. So you want to be able to perform what is necessary quickly. And the planning that goes into those exercises is very high so that we don't make those mistakes. We don't have delays. So working with companies like QI2 and others by providing digital twin solutions, visualization solutions, depends on what the need was, really got us an opportunity to speak with oil and gas professionals and understand their business problems. And, you know, they, they you end up sitting and looking at a business problem a certain way, but taking a couple steps back and understanding, well, how could we do it differently, right? Is there a more efficient way to accomplish that? What are the, the the fundamental challenges with the current way we do business? And how would we we adopt something new that would create a better way, a more efficient way, a more accurate way, a safer way to do that particular job or exercise and to provide oversight? So one of the, the cool things we learned too is that, you know, one of the oil and gas companies would fly out from Ohio to be on site in Houston for a lot of these, you know, turnaround times. And that was costly. It was it was the scheduling, all of that was difficult. Now that person could enter the confined space through a virtual record the same day or next day that that data was captured. So that means they didn't have to physically be on site. So when we start talking about hundreds or thousands of these 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 tank inspections, you know, it adds up to being a tremendous business cost savings and also a health and safety savings. And it also really impacts the schedule significantly. So the downtime efforts um, involving reality capture, involving uh, virtual environments has dramatically grown over the last 10 years uh, significantly. And it goes right into uh, design efforts too, especially like um, prefab and fabrication, uh, pipe pipe racks and things of this nature. So there's a, a firm I've uh, supported up in Grand Prairie, Alberta, that does a lot of the support for these big oil and gas companies. They come out with a crew, they laser scan, so they create a virtual environment of the as-is conditions. They bring that back and they then are able to manufacture down to, we're talking millimeter accuracy. Think about you know Lego blocks. And they're going to be able to construct, weld, create parts, and do that, you know, thousands of miles away and have this already prepared and shipped in on trucks that they can put it together like Lego. And that replaces the being on site and customly creating uh, these, these parts, pipes, connectors in person. So that's a tremendous change. It removes the downtime. It removes the costs of, of waste and all sorts of things. So, you know, that that aspect of, of improvement is really, really you know, grown the industry significantly. Okay. That is really interesting. Going on from from what you were saying, so did you have any mentors during your career? I, I would say I've always gravitated people that are a lot smarter. <laughs> and whenever there is a topic I, I don't clearly understand, I do a lot of research 
I try to find people that are smarter than me, that know more of me, and really interview and, and ask questions and try to learn. But but also to respect their time and to make sure I come to the conversation prepared enough with good questions and to try to offer something back if possible. So I think I've gained significant value from being networking on LinkedIn uh, to the point now where I've, I've grown a really good network where I feel that if I have any almost any business problem today, there is someone on the other end of that of that network that I could communicate with that could give me some good sound advice. And oftentimes it's something I might know and I just want to confirm. I want to have validation. I want three people to to come back and tell me that they agree or, or how they look at that, that business problem. So I do a lot of that confirming. So I, my mentorship is, is really a whole bunch of people and it's creating a network where I'm always learning. I spend probably an hour plus a day on LinkedIn because I've fostered such a cool community of really unique individuals that are sharing information frequently. So I'm reading, I'm learning, I'm on top of technology. And, and that's really important because if you just work in a silo and you're not connected to what's going on, both from a technology, a use case, and an industry perspective, you can really lose sight quickly and get far behind. I I do agree. I think it's uh, I think it's really important to keep up to date with the latest uh, technologies and developments out there. Yeah. Yeah. So, what is the most challenging thing about your current role? <laughs> uh, there is there is a lot of challenges. So, when you go into an organization or a business unit, you know, often the case is not necessarily the the, the enterprise itself, there's always some misunderstandings on what a digital twin is. So the first part of the process is really to try to get the decision makers, the leadership, and that's who we're working with oftentimes, is, is the leadership that want to create fundamental business change. We need to first start talking the same language. So let's define things, what they mean, make sure that everyone is, is on the same page. And, that, and that's hard because they all have different missions, they have different uh, goals, they have different ideas, and that's great to contribute to what we want to solve, but we still need to make sure that that we're kind of going in a, in a direction that both is realistic and practical, but also kind of, you know, is not going to require three com- completely different paths. Once we've kind of established that baseline and created a charter and we really understand kind of what is this program going to look like, we do a lot of the business case, you know, workshopping. So we really need to speak with leaders understand their business problems, review their finances on things that are, are costly and, and really start to, to bring in a lot of information that we analyze, right? And, and we analyze that information and come up with uh, findings. So things that we wanna analyze are the business problems and, and the feasibility of solving those business problems with a digital twin or 3D technologies. Some things just don't require it. So we wanna focus on the things that will have an impact. We also look at, at things like preparedness and readiness. So what is the baseline information that we have to help solve these problems? A lot of times there's issues with naming conventions, data classifications, all sorts of things that can be problematic. Think of just really messy data, right? Data that is not something we can query and find. So when, when those fundamental things are not in place, it's going to we're not going to be able to execute things that are future looking until we we fix some of those fundamental things. So based on that judgment of where we're at, we may choose different use cases or business problems to solve because they're going to be easier to achieve in the short term and don't require a lot of, a, a, not a, a lot of cleanup on the, on the, on the backside. 
We also look at the systems and the softwares that the owners are, are using today to see, you know, how feasible is it that we can connect these these systems to talk to each other, either it be one way, two ways, or, or data upload. So really a lot of what digital twins are about is reducing the data silos, the separation of data between business stakeholders or different people within a, a, a division and somehow create a kind of a single pane of glass that they can look through to make these decisions more effectively. So we look at those platforms also from a data security perspective, the cybersecurity and threat perspective. Really, that has to be a fundamental pillar of anything that we get involved with, because if we make recommendations to do things differently with these business systems, we need to make sure that we're doing it safe and secure, that the right people have access to the right information when they need it, but don't have broad access when they don't need it. It creates vulnerabilities within the organization. So these are these are a lot of the, the thoughts. And out of those come the need for doing further gap analysis, further improvements. But some things we were really looking for is the low-hanging fruit that, hey, here's a business problem. We can solve this in six to 12 months by doing these things. And we do a lot of agile project development using that kind of iterative process, Right. So let's find a business problem. We think if we connect these solutions and we do this, this is going to make it easier for us to make business decisions. So now we architect the technical roadmap on how to solve that. That includes the budget vendors, technology, everything involved in that so that we can reach that. But that's that's not the end of it, right? Because there are other things to consider. The cultural change of people within the organization, their, their affinity to technology. Are they going to use it or not, right? How do we look at fundamental business process change, culture change? That is, that is one of the hardest things to grip our fingers around. So, and, and what is the fundamental ROI? What are we expecting to have for savings? And that's going to drive the funding. So if we don't know where we are from where we want to get to and all the steps to get there, we're not going to get leadership to uh, release the money to do these projects. So I think from a leadership communication perspective, you got to have many different conversations, right? You talk to someone on an engineering level, they want to know how it works, what are the steps, all of that, because they're problem solvers from how to break and fix things. But you want to talk to a leader, they want to know, well, what is the story I'm telling here, right? And it's, it is a narrative on, on, we're doing this and we're solving this problem and these are the great impacts. It's got to be something they can say in a sentence or two. It's something that they're going to say in a press release. It's something that they're going to communicate to their other leaders when they're in conferences and things of that nature. So that that one is really a tricky one to refine and to tweak and to make sure that, that the clarity on the business problem we're solving and the end results of where we're going to get to make sense, right? But you can't just have that vision without the building blocks on how to get there, because otherwise you're, you're, you're talking pixie dust, <laughs> as I like to say, and it's not achievable. And so you got many different roles and stake players. So it's really navigating that and talking to the uh, persona or the person that you're talking to in the language that they want to understand. So I think, you know, out of this, this whole process, communication and alignment is, is one of the biggest fundamental changes and then secondly, it would be the cultural change and the adoption of technology and how that process change happens. Those are, those are difficult ones. And unfortunately, the industry really is driven by vendors. And that's the big problem that we're trying to help solve is because vendors go in with short, tight, short, short kind of tunnel vision where let's implement a product and it's going to 
give you value, but we don't even necessarily understand the business problem. So, you know, that is the wrong approach to go technology first and not go through this fundamental consulting process so that we have a, a, a true field to finish understanding of how we're going to do business change, right? So those are those are some of the things that we tackle in, in the everyday uh, work that we do. Okay. So do you think that the latest developments in technology, like your AI and your, I think it's the chat, G, G, GTP, isn't it? Yep, yep. Do you think that that's going to change what you're doing for the future? Oh, 100%. You know, what we're doing is a digital transformation effort, right? We are taking industry knowledge and unstructured data and data silos and getting the data prepared in a format and in a place like a digital twin so that we can run machine learning, AI, and other types of automation uh, over our data. And that is what we're doing. So whether it be sensor data and looking at historians and doing data trending and data analysis and predictive analysis so that we can monitor and predict failures before failures happen, that's a huge topic, right? Or we're looking on, on the machine learning that we are starting to get smarter, you know, looking at simulation, looking at modeling something. What if we did it this way? What if we did it that way? What could happen? What would happen? And there's ways to run synthetic data models to go through kind of millions of different uh, scenarios to pick the best scenario. And that's happening a lot too, even on the early design stages, you know, is this design going to work, right? Can we run data through this model can we simulate what happens when we have different stresses? Are we going to have failure? And when we can predict the failure in the virtual world, it prevents us from making fundamental mistakes in the real world, right? And that, that is the primary concept of digital twinning. And, and some of this technology, AI and simulation, it's not new. I mean, a lot of this has been done for many years, uh, from the 60s and 50s. Some of this is where it was born but it was very mathematical and spreadsheets. And now we're getting into using computer processing to really churn out this data really quickly. And that's really, I think the, the change today is the amount of data processing that we can do in the cloud and the automation that, that we're taking, something that was very, very heavy to do in the, in the past and doing it very quickly. Okay, no, that's interesting, thank you. So is there anything that you still want to achieve in your career? Oh, sure. You know, uh, I'm a bit of a geek. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm driven and passionate about business problems that I solve. You know, we, we went from, I went from working with major manufacturers of producing technology, being involved in the R&D process, being involved with big organizations where I ran, you know, teams of over 200 people just in my business unit to now kind of having a small boutique firm where we have, handful of consultants and those that are doing reality capture. I'd like to grow that and, and to share and to, to, to get a deeper grip into some of these businesses and, and impact some positive change. But I mean, I'm not out there to be a millionaire uh, family and balance in, in, in life is, is important too. So I'm glad I'm not on a plane every week, like I used to be in the past. So, you know, I, I'm enjoying a, being at the beginning and the cutting stage of technology that, that to me is helpful. I've always been a big thinker and it just be able to kind of 
influence and impact change because you're in that conversation or be along with it. And again, it's not always my ideas. It's most of the time it's not. It's ideas that I heard and, and, and resurfaced and researched and kind of putting those together into kind of a vision of where things can go. But um, again, not being afraid to fail and go out there and try new things is really, really important. And don't be a follower, right? I mean, it's it's good to follow people that are brilliant and smart and you know look at their ideas and try things, but don't be afraid to challenge the norms, right? At one point, this earth was flat. <laughs> if no one challenged that, it, you know, I think we'd be in a different place today. So I think that's the fun part. I'm enjoying the journey and, you know, um, I think growing the firm and doing more business and, call, and solving more problems, that's quite satisfying. I agree. What is the hardest problem that you've had to solve? Well, I don't know. It, all, all of these, these, uh, these things are hard. I think, I think sometimes we get some tunnel vision into a project and, yeah, again, it's the communication and understanding the stakeholders can really be challenging sometimes, right? Just what is their real mission? What they really, what do they want to do? Like, why, why do we get some roadblocks or obstacles sometimes? And getting over that, that that can be challenging. So I, I don't know if I could point to a specific challenge. I mean, we are in the challenge business. We deal with challenges all day long, every day. Problem solving is what we do. But it's, um, I think a big part of it is just making sure you can listen. You know, making sure you can present questions that are open-ended to have conversations instead of yes, no answers, and really sit there and listen and try to understand those business problems. Try to synthesize what's really going on. Know how to to ask the right questions to get to the right answers. It's really frustrating when you get deep into a project and you miss something, right? And you miss something fundamental that was was critical and and would have changed either the, the whole schedule or the design. So being thorough and being, you know, applying a methodology, how you go through this to make sure you don't make those fundamental misses. I think that's the big thing and really just kind of staying focused on the process. Okay. Interesting. That leads me on to the next question, actually. Have you ever encountered any career disasters? Any career disasters? Yeah. Uh, we've had, I've had career changes. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I've had success in, in, all of the roles that I've played, there have been either family changes or job changes, whether they're in my control or not, that have shifted my focus. But the, I think the thing with that is, is never to be negative if there's a fundamental shift or if you make a shift. It's really, I find that the door has always been brighter and there's always something new to walk into. So that immediate shift is, is what I think people need to to kind of be able to absorb and to pivot to do something like that can be fundamentally hard. And that could be, you know, losing a, a supplier relationship, losing, losing a role, losing, losing the ability to do the business that you were doing in the way that you're doing and having to kind of say, okay, well, we need, we need to, to go a different direction now. What does that look like? How quickly can you pivot? Right. And I think having a bit of a bigger kind of plan or understanding will allow you to do that because you have the options already in your head mapped out. Maybe they weren't the first options. Maybe they were preferable options, but you just haven't made that that shift yet. But I think I think that's a big one is really just being able to shift in your career, shift in your business process. If, if you're a, an owner of a business, a shift in your business model or your, your revenue source, those types of things can be 
can be crippling if you don't know where you're going to go next. I do agree with that. What is your zone of genius? What are you most good at? Oh, I wouldn't call myself a genius. And, and I think if anything was genius, it's just bringing smart people around me. I think that that is the thing. And listen to people like in really, in, you know, empathetically listening, listening where you're trying to understand what that person is really saying, not listening because you think you have a brighter idea and you're just being quiet so that you can say something next. I think that's that's one of the challenges that sometimes geniuses have is they know they're a genius and they're very smart, but they also tune out the, the words of wisdom around them. So I think the wisest people are the best listeners. And, and you'll see that actually in, in board meetings and whatnot, as some of the wisest people in the room sit quiet and they listen, they synthesize and they understand that empathetically. And then they come with some of the most brilliant statements because they're listening. And the wisdom of the group is far more important than the in, in the individual wisdom of the one. So I think that's 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 kind of the way I would put it. And the way I've been successful is is really extracting the information from smart people, knowing what to extract, what not to extract, and and really even any of these 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 engagements that we go into, we're bringing some new ideas and frameworks, but they know the business problems. It's really we need to help them understand in order and and take the ideas and the information they actually have in their heads and put it into a business framework where we can solve that problem differently. But uh, but that's the way I'd probably answer that question. But even when you're in business, how do you go about attracting the most cleverest people to, to, to come around you? Well, they don't come to me. I go to them. <laughs> well, I think it's twofold. I think it's twofold. Part of it is you have to be involved in the community, right? The community can be organizations. It can be standards. It could be any of those things. And that does take volunteer work. I, I'm involved with, with a number of organizations where I'm a contributor. And sometimes I'm a silent contributor. I'm sitting there listening and learning and sometimes I'm more active. So when you're involved in the communities and networks, you can learn, you can find people, and you can listen for voices that you can really resonate with, right? So those those those, those uh, networks can be organizations or industry associations, things of that nature. They can also be social networks, right? So within the you know LinkedIn communities and other social communities, there, there are people that are willing to share ideas. There are people that are willing to help solve problems in those communities, right? And I, I do my best to, to contribute in those spaces too. And it's really, it's really fundamentally interesting how the more involved you are in these communities, the more you get known by people you had no idea. And I oftentimes get people reach out to me that say, listen, I've been, I've been watching or listening to you for a long time, for years. And I was waiting for the right time to engage. And I always find that fascinating, almost a bit creepy, <laughs> but it was like, well, that's cool. And, and Again, what you, I've always thought this in the world, the more you give out, the more you get back. And in the consulting world, that's a slippery slope. You have to be very careful because, you know, people are there to extract information from you and you need to be able to build for your time and your ideas. So that that is a bit of a careful thing that I I try to try to manage and, I'm, and maybe not always super good at that, right? Because I like to share ideas. But yeah, I think that's the, the, the way I've done that is that way. And in some cases, when you're in a big company, you're going to acquire talents and I'm going to bring paid consultants on that have ideas because I'm looking fundamentally to get help, right? 
And I would say that's the same thing that these oil and gas companies are doing when they hire me or our company, rather. It's, it's they fundamentally have business problems and they have confusion over things and they want help. So they're trying to find clarity, understanding. They want to have strategic decision process and planning. And they want to make sure that we we get some help doing that so that we're not going, we're going to avoid failure, right? It's best to always find someone that's failed and learn from the mistakes. There's, there's nothing better to do than having a conversation with someone that has failed and failed miserably <laughs> and, and understand all the reasons why that is sometimes the most valuable, valuable information you could gather is so that you prevent yourself from having that. You learn from that failure and say, well, what we could have done differently, what will we do different? And I think those the, the investigating some of the failures are some of the best information out there. So again, the social networks, the organizations, associations, conferences, I think are great too. I like to go to conferences. I speak at conferences. I love listening to speakers. I love, you know, socializing with vendors. Vendors have really good ideas too, right? So, but you got to be careful, right? Like, am I listening to a sales pitch or where's the knowledge, right? And some vendors will spend all day, every day with a specific type of use case and a specific type of business problem. And they talk to everyone in the industry on that problem. And sometimes they can be the smartest people that you could ever find on something really niche. But you got to be able to separate, well, wh- where's the IP? Where's the, where's the knowledge and where's the sales? Where's that in? And that's, that's a, that one you have to be careful on, right? You really have to be careful on what, what is being told and what has been proven, what is truth and what is sales. That is really interesting. I, I do, and I do agree that it's important to network as well. So if you were going to hire someone, what would make a night standing hire, in your opinion, if you were going to hire a graduate or something like that? Yeah. So I actually, um, I, I actually had all of my sales leaders in the past read a book, and the book is called "The Ideal Team Player." Before we did any hiring, and we, and the, the, the author's name is Patrick Lee Choney, and I'm a I'm a fun, fundamental believer in the thoughts that that are in this process. And it's super, super easy to kind of understand, right? So the, the three things that that we're looking at are, are kind of almost cultural. They're, they're almost human defects that we're looking for that make up an individual. There's always skills. You can hire someone for skills, but you can't hire someone that is going to do a job that has skills and doesn't necessarily have passion, right? So one of the things I look for is passion, passion and drive, it doesn't matter, you know, even what role it is. You could be in finance, you could be an admin, you could be anywhere. But if you have a passion and enjoy what you do and you like what you do and you're passionate about being successful with it, that, that's that's really a, a, an important part. I think you know, we want people that are that are hungry, that that want to come to work to every day, that not over ambitious, that will become you know unethical at how they do business, right? So there's a there's a slippery slope there. And there's this, this idea of people smarts, of emotional intelligence, right? So those are the kind of three things that I look at from a fundamental personality, character perspective that are really, really important to me as a business owner and, and, and as a, an executive in other businesses. And I, I felt that book was really helpful. I, I read it back when it was published, probably, you know, five, six years, well, more than that. I don't know when it was published. That was my, my early days at Ferrum. And, and I felt that just, I just... It was like an epiphany. It's like, yes, I, I totally gravitated and identify with that. 
And we would make those decisions as a team, never by myself. I'd always have a team do the hiring process and it would, and we'd have to agree and we'd, we'd believe in that person, right? Now that doesn't let, neglect the skills. You don't hire someone that's, you know, got drive and got hunger and he's emotionally intelligent as an engineer and has no engineering skills. Don't get me wrong, right? You, you need you need all of those things. And, and in some industries, you know, we're going to have people that are not, you know, not outwardly people per people. <laughs> that's kind of a hard way to put it. But, you know, if you're an engineer, you, you're, you're oftentimes introverted. You, you're oftentimes, you know, you, you have different characters. You have to take that model and apply it to the role as well. But that's been helpful for me in terms of how, how I uh, look at hiring. And I, I do want to look beyond the role too. I mean, it, it's, it's important to understand, you know, the individual outside of work, right? Because there's more to what they need to be successful at the job. So it's, it's good to have a, a fundamental understanding of who they are and what they do, what are their activities, things that um, we can see if they're involved in certain sports and competitive. That That's a, that's a really translatable skill set, you know, competitive nature, right? So things like that can be helpful. Based on the roles, though, really depends, right, on what role you're hiring for. Okay. So what, in your opinion, is one of the key aspects of being a team player well I, I those are the three without those three if you miss one of those three things it, it won't work so you know if you don't have empathy if you can't sit and listen to a conversation like we were talking earlier and mm-hmm. i can't truly hear what someone else is, is saying and 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 synthesize that and understand that there's no way i could be a team player right if you're the one always talking and don't listen that's not being a team player you can't be a team player by talking you have to be able to listen Right. On the other side, you have to be able to have the passion and the interest to actually solve the problems. You don't want to be just the guy that's at the table clocking in and clocking out. If you start to have that kind of I don't really care attitude, like we don't want people like that. You're not going to get a team player that's trying to solve business problems if they're there to clock in and out and just do their job and their job only not care about those around them or care about how what you do impacts someone else in the organization, right? And the hunger is there too. You, you have to be able to always be improving. As a team, we're, we're coming to the game, so we win the game, right? It's a competition, whether you're competing to, to have a safe environment every day, whether you're competing to do better than another company that's out there, whether it, there's, there's many ways that we can compete and we need to set KPIs and we need to look to be competitive and want to desire to achieve those, to do better in an organization. It could be operational efficiency. It could be from an EPA perspective. We want to be comp- competitive in terms of the, the greenhouse gases and, and the CO2 levels. And if that's got to be important to us. And we, we have to care about those goals and we have to go after those goals. So I think you can take a lot of that right back to those fundamental values. If you don't have them, if you're self-interested or don't care, or you just won't listen, you can't be a proper team player. You're never going to kind of work in that environment effectively. You might work well on your own, be an individual contributor. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of people in organizations that, that are, are fabulous contributors in terms of what they do, but that's not a team player. That's an individual contributor. Okay. No, that is really good advice. Thank you. So how would you describe your typical working week? So my work week, I, I'm uh, in the field typically Tuesday, Thursday, Tuesday through Thursday. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Mondays and Friday work from home. So I'm typically up at six every morning, 
coffee, breakfast, need to have a meal in me before I could sit and focus and concentrate. And then I, I do dive into emails, but I, I, I have my schedule planned out. And really, schedule planning is really, really critical. So I know what needs to be accomplished in the day. I know what amount of time and energy I need to put into what particular projects. And I have to be careful of burnout. And that's one thing that I've, I've struggled with. I get really zoned into something. And I can stay focused on that for hours and hours. And, and it's not healthy to, to, to not take a break, right? I, I've gotten to the point where I really need to schedule time to rest my brain and to get some fresh air and to you know, have a glass of water and then come back and, and hit it again fresh with a, with a fresh um, you know, thought pattern. So that's, that's really, really, I think, important. You know, when I'm, when I'm preparing for workshops and I'm preparing for presentations, there's, there's a lot that I want to go through first before I'm sitting in front of those individuals. So the preparation work before I do an activity is critical. I have the right questions in mind. I have the right messaging. And there are frameworks I've used in the past that I continually use and go back to those basics. And am I following this formula? Am I following this methodology? And, and, and always getting pure feedback, right? So I don't get it right the first time sometimes. So, you know, the way to get it right is to get it wrong first, as I've said in the past, with a peer and to tweak and fix so that when we are on the stage and we are working with clients that we get it right. And sometimes that's also just having good knowledge on who you're going to be talking to, doing some research, asking some people, reading what they've uh, written in the past so that we have a better understanding, we have a better communication with that person. So again, my week looks like that. I do try to shut down on late Fridays. I do, sometimes I do often a lot of 12 hour days in my work week but I try to shut off on Saturdays and Sundays. And historically that's been a big problem for me. You know, I do three week business trips and not shut off at all. And it's really unhealthy for the family. It's really unhealthy for myself. So I think understanding when to switch that off is, is really important. And the weekends are important for me to spend with the kids or go to church or do, do the things in my community that I enjoy doing. And that, I, I think that's, that's, Something that we we always have to expect from people, and those that are are pushing themselves too hard, you almost need to say, "Hey, you know what? You need some personal time yourself. You know, it's good to to come here and work your butt off, but you know that you know you got to hang your jacket, and go home, and you know you need to have some personal things in your life, and work can't take over your life too much. And I think that balance is really important. No, I think that's a really important message. Thank you. If you could turn back time, would you change anything? Oh, I would have uh, bet on some different lottery tickets. <laughs> I, in all seriousness, I, I, uh, I, I, uh, I really don't think so. I mean, there's always individual things that you wish you would have done different in life. But some of the things that I did, I went through my university. And rather than do my law school, I took a job with a tech company. And I traveled to Asia. And I traveled a lot. So... Do I regret that decision? I actually don't at all, right? I, I love that I have traveled in my life and I love that I've met many different people from all over the world and I've had opportunities to do that. So I think, you know, if I would have done it differently, I would have regret it, I think. So I, I love that I've been having the opportunity to, to, to experience life and to travel and to do different things. I mean, I, 
work-related travel, but still even when I was doing work-related travel, I got to, to, to really experience it. And when I was working in telecommunications in my early 20s and going to like places like Micronesia in the Middle East, I mean, it's crazy, right? And I mean, I, I still had time to, to, to go and experience at least a day while I was there. And I made afford my time to do that. So, you know, I, I think I'm very fortunate for some of the decisions I made or how, how my path was, was, was guided for me. So I don't have any regrets on, on that part of my life, although there's always individual decisions I wish I would have done differently, little things on a daily basis, right? But that makes sense who we are today. Okay, yes, no, that's a good, really good analysis. I just wondered as well, one final question. If you had any advice to any new graduates or anybody wanting to enter into the energy sector, what would that be? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think a really important thing is that uh, digital transformation is coming and it is rapidly coming. So we need, I, I would say that to explore and understand what's out there and what's coming and to self-educate because a lot of this knowledge is not necessarily in the classroom. I actually just created a course on digital twins at an engineering school up in Canada called Mohawk College. And there are a number of these micro-credential classes that have been created to help with that gap, that industry upskilling gap. And that, that knowledge is just not in the classroom. So although you learn certain things in the classroom, that's great. That, that should never be the end of your learning. You should always be challenging yourself to learn more, to follow others, to network. And that, I think, is where you can fundamentally pivot into roles that are that are exciting, that are new, that are future-proof, that are, are lucrative, and that uh, give a lot of job satisfaction, right? So I think, you know, that's, that's a, I, I think, definitely embracing technology and digital transformation in general and automation, these types of fields. Don't be afraid of them. Learn what you can learn. You know, get some mentors that we can you can learn more from. Take on tasks that you maybe don't get paid or you know that, that are a little bit outside of work scope so that you can you can learn because I, I tell you the amount you can learn in the job space from doing something like that, you you wouldn't be able to even find in in a classroom and and, and couldn't pay enough. It, it's absolutely invaluable. And those skills are, are, are niche, niche skills that, that translate into really significant value. Okay. That is really good advice, actually. So that's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank Kelly for your time. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Thanks for having me. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.